Welcome to Pro Se, Law 360's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Amber McKinney, and I am joined by Haley Knopf. Hey, Amber. How's it going? It's going great. So we do not have Alex Lawson this week, and it's a real loss because the thing I want to talk about right away are the Emmy nominations, and we're all big TV people. Yes. Ugh, Alex, I'm so sorry that you missed our big Emmy talk, but <laughs> we'll, we'll catch him up after. Let's not oversell it. I just have a few <laughs> things I wanted to say about it. The first is, you know, some of the usual suspects that we've talked about in Pro Se a million times were among the Emmy nominees. Like, Succession got a whole slew of nominations. Good old um, Jerry. Yeah. But few surprises. Uh, one that I'm going to indulge us, Haley, because Alex isn't here to stop us. One of the big surprises was Vanderpump Rules. I'm so glad you brought this up. When I saw this, I was beside myself. Admittedly, I didn't even know Unscripted could be nominated until this year. I think Um, they call it something like Unstructured Reality Program. And boy, oh boy, is Vanderpump unstructured. (laughs) Um, But they got that nomination. And then a second one for editing, too. I just think Scandaval has such a life of his own. It's also going to possibly garner an Emmy. I know. I My immediate thought was, wow, okay, so maybe it is a good thing that... <laughs> oh, no. A good thing that someone that cheated on their long-term Sandra partner on television? Me. I mean, not a good thing, but <laughs> it's, it's good, going to benefit the show. <laughs> then the whole cast. Um, yeah. Okay. I, I mean, as much as I did say I'd indulge, I will stop us there because there is one thing that actually does tie into th- what we talked about on Pro Se... Do you remember when we had the interview with the jury duty cast members? Do I? Yeah. Lives rent free. We were early days with that. We were lucky enough to interview three of the cast members of that program. It's episode 294. If anybody missed it, it was a really fun conversation about a show that's sort of hard to understand how they even pulled it off. And we talked all about that. And all three of the people we interviewed who were actors in the show have real-world legal expertise. So I loved the conversation and had so much fun doing it. And I'm talking about it now because that sleeper hit of a show got four Emmy nominations. Four. Incredible. Well-deserved, in my opinion. And not just because it had to do with the legal world, which, of course, we are partial to. It was just hilarious. Yeah, it was a great show. It got nominated. It's nominated for Outstanding Comedy Series, Supporting Actor in a Comedy for James Marsden, who was fantastic in it, Casting for a Comedy Series, and also Writing for a Comedy Series. Huh. One little beat on that. We don't have Alex with us here today, but we did discuss this in our production meeting. And he really wanted to like drive home the fact that it is a show where um, it is largely improvised, but that doesn't mean there's no writing. And as like a a nerd for film and TV, he did want to point out that this is a great example of how there is writing chops that go into a show like Jury Duty, even though a lot of it is improvised. And I think that's also another plug for our episode where we got to talk to the people involved because one of them was on the writing staff. Yeah, uh, Doing that's some script right. supervising. And we got to kind of dig into how that all worked. So really love that we're seeing this show get some accolades. It's fun. It's great. And also, I will, because Alex is not here to stop us, although he would enjoy this one, another unexpected place for writers to appear is like something like The Bachelor. And they totally, I don't think they call them writers, but their producers essentially function as writers as well. So really, every show in some capacity has a writer, which is then relevant to the WGA strike. It's all relevant. It's all news. It all comes around to stuff we're covering on Pro Se. 
I will not belabor it anymore because we do have an excellent show to get to. We do have a really interesting talk with Jack Karp coming up, one of our frequent Pro State guests, and he's going to come on to talk about a wrinkle with a New York law around cannabis that both legalized it, but also has some provisions about expunging some crimes related to the drug. And it's not going great uh, making it through uh, for people to get their records expunged in that way. So we're going to talk to Jack all about it. Yeah, really fascinating stuff. Make sure you stick around for that. But first, Amber, you have a Microsoft story for us. I prefer to couch this as a gamer story, Haley. This is for the gamers out there. My bad. This is a big antitrust battle. So this week, a California federal judge refused to put a preliminary block on Microsoft's $68.7 billion merger with Activision Blizzard. Okay, these are some very big names. We, I feel like we hear about Activision Blizzard more and more frequently these days. Why did the FTC want this blocked? So the FTC says that Microsoft, who, if anybody doesn't already know this, makes the Xbox, would be incentivized to impede Sony PlayStation access to a bunch of crucial Activision games, in particular, they focused a lot on Call of Duty, which is tremendously popular. So the basic idea is that the FTC is forwarding, is that if you let a console maker and a game maker merge, they corner the market and they block out the other gaming console makers. This is pretty important, especially with the way a lot of these work, which is they are on the cloud. And so that um, implicates a lot of these like various consoles that should be able to access the game. Right. Okay. I mean, that logic does make sense to me, but it sounds like it did not make sense to the court. What did the court rule? The judge said that while it's possible that the merger could lessen competition in the, they call it the Gen 9 console market, it's actually not likely, according to the judge. The judge said, and I'm quoting here, Call of Duty's long history as a highly popular multi-platform cross-play game makes that result not probable. The judge also seemed to give stock to promises Microsoft has made publicly to license Call of Duty to Sony for 10 years. That same statement that they promised they're going to license it in that way also swayed competition regulators in the EU to approve the deal. Okay. So I know there were five whole days of arguments here surrounding this injunction. Was there anything else interesting that came out of those uh, hearings? Yeah, this is like my tidbits corner. I just want to give you a few highlights since it was a pretty lengthy set of arguments, hearings around this request for an injunction. U.S. District Judge Jacqueline Scott Corley did disclose before the hearing that her son actually works at Microsoft. So oh, make that boy. Way well. Yep, it was disclosed, though, and I think that's an interesting thing to note. And then there were some also interesting arguments that were being made during the hearing. Um, an FTC expert from Harvard calculated that about 20% of gamers would buy an Xbox in order to play Call of Duty if Microsoft makes the game exclusive to Xbox. 20% seems like a lot because a lot of people play that game. That is just one expert, though. The judge did question why the FTC hadn't factored in things like reputational harm that could occur if Microsoft were to make Call of Duty exclusive. So competing theories there, but I think Mm -hmm. an interesting set of arguments. I suppose that would, you know, it could, in theory, rile up the gaming community in a in a significant manner. I mean, you mean the gaming community isn't completely chill and cool at all times? <laughs> I'm so surprised. Yeah, yeah. I think the judge is kind of nodding to that. That like, you yeah. really don't want to make this customer base really angry, which an ex- exclusivity like that potentially would. So is this injunction the end for the government's challenge to this merger? 
This is where it gets pretty interesting, I think. Typically, it really would be. The FTC still has an in-house case pending, but generally they would drop that kind of review if a federal judge refuses to impose a preliminary block. But here we got another twist on Wednesday. So just yesterday, the FTC filed an appeal of the injunction denial to the Ninth Circuit. Ooh, okay. Buckle up. Yeah, I mean, we've got some stuff to follow here. So we will first have to see what the Ninth Circuit does there. And the companies had been hoping to close the deal by a self-imposed deadline that's in the structure of the deal that's actually just next week. It's July 18th that they were trying to close this all up. So I'm going to go ahead and prognosticate and say that seems unlikely, but we'll see how it plays next week. Even if the FTC does ultimately drop this review, the companies are still not fully in the clear to merge. There are other countries that are also reviewing the deal. That includes Canada and the UK. And the deal is also under a challenge by private plaintiffs that's currently asking the Ninth Circuit to revive their bid for an initial block. So in short, the game of will they merge continues. All right. Well, next up, Twitter has launched a very interesting fee dispute with the law firm that helped it force Elon Musk to follow through with his $44 billion acquisition last year. The company says Watchdell Lipton, Rosen and Katz charged Twitter $90 million in fees for its work. And Twitter has called that a gargantuan amount that the firm was only able to collect because it was exploiting, quote, lame duck fiduciaries, a.k.a. the departing Twitter executives who no longer cared to act in Twitter's best interest. Haley, I mean, okay, on the face of it, it does sound gargantuan. $90 million is a lot of money. Yeah. Uh, But I need more details, of course. What exactly happened here? What are the legal claims that, that Twitter's bringing? First, I have a little background for you. So as you'll recall, last year, Elon tried to back out of his promise to buy Twitter. Twitter then hired Watchdell as part of its legal team that sued Musk in Delaware's Court of Chancery. The New York City firm helped Twitter secure an expedited trial, and that put pressure on Elon before he finally agreed to close the deal on its original terms. So the suit was technically filed by Twitter's new parent company, X Corporation, which was established by Elon after his purchase. The company says Watchdell initially agreed to work on an hourly fee basis, pretty typical, and submitted earlier invoices that totaled about $18 million. I would just like to say here, uh, X Corporation is very funny to me. It, it's it, like it is. either Elon <laughs> just didn't have a name for it, or it also sounds like what the villain company would be in a movie. It really does. Uh, So in the days and hours leading up to the deal closing, this is when Twitter says things got spicy. That's when the firm knew its work on the matter had concluded. The deal was about to be closed. It had no foreseeable hours to bill. Watchdell then convinced Twitter to fundamentally alter its fee arrangement so that the firm could also obtain a so-called success fee. That's according to the suit, of course. Well, I mean, I've heard of things like a success fee before. So just on the face of it, that's not necessarily unheard of or some crazy thing. But it seems like maybe Twitter is saying the negotiations were at a vulnerable time or a time when it wasn't all above board. Is that really what's happening? Exactly. Twitter says its board of directors had actually already signed their resignation letters when they met for the last time and then signed off on this payment to the firm. 
So they and, had a real case of senioritis at that point. Yeah. Like, we're out of here anyway. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Like when you sign your name on, on the last math quiz of the semester sure. and leave everything blank. So at that time, the company, according to Twitter, had been left unprotected by those so-called lame duck fiduciaries who no longer had any motivation to act in the company's best interest, according to Twitter. So here's a good quote from the suit. Fully aware that nobody with an economic interest in Twitter's financial well-being was minding the store, Watchdell arranged to effectively line its pockets with funds from the company cash register while the keys were being handed over to the Musk parties. And then on top of that, Twitter also says Watchdell submitted these massive invoices with just completely blank time entry descriptions, which is a very minor detail, but I thought a uh, an interesting one. This is a fascinating fee dispute. I mean, we get into some of these on the show, and we certainly write about them at Law360 because it is interesting how lawyers get paid and, and how that all shakes out. But this one's just got it all, I think. It, um, it does. What does Twitter actually want the court to do? Like, what's what's their ask? Twitter says the court must find that the fee payment was made under an unenforceable contract and therefore must be voided. Another interesting tidbit here about that fee is Twitter says it represents nearly 10% of Watchdell's gross revenue in 2022, and it comes out to over $1 million per Watchdell partner. They're saying, wow, that's a lot. That's a lot for all those lawyers. That's a lot for a single matter that only took a few months to wrap up. And uh, it shouldn't be, it, it should just be voided. One other thing I'll note is, as this is all happening, the backdrop here, Twitter is itself accused of a whole bunch of things since Elon took over. And a lot of those have to do with uh, unmade payments, we, one could say. Oh, sure. There've been a, there's been a real deluge of people basically lining up saying, like, you haven't, you haven't paid me for X, Y, or Z service. A bunch of laid-off Twitter employees say they're still owed severance. Former executives say they're owed legal expenses that they incurred responding to lawsuits and regulatory inquiries. And property owners even say that Twitter stopped paying rent. The list goes on and on. As always, when it comes to Twitter and Elon Musk... We've got a lot to keep our eyes on here. New York's law legalizing marijuana also includes provisions to clear old felony pot convictions. The confusion about the law and a possible typo means some judges are denying the requests. Here to explain the situation is senior reporter Jack Karp. Jack, it's so great to have you back on the show. Thanks, Sanford. It's good to be back. This one is very interesting. I mean, cannabis has been legalized by a bunch of states in various capacities. And pretty often those legalization pushes also include a chance to vacate certain old marijuana convictions. Can you tell us more about exactly what that law is like in New York and how it works? Um, well, the first thing I'll say is that a lot of attorneys would say it doesn't work. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but the Marijuana Regulation and Taxation Act, which was uh, the law that legalized recreational cannabis in New York, it has a, a provision that automatically vacates past convictions for certain low-level marijuana crimes. 
Um, and it allows people who are convicted of kind of higher level marijuana felonies to petition a court to either vacate their past conviction or in certain cases, replace that conviction with another conviction for a lesser offense. You know, if either the crime they were committed of would no longer be criminal under the new law or would be a lesser crime under the new law. Um, and there are, you know, a series of requirements that they have to meet. One of the big ones is that the conviction has to have severe and ongoing consequences. But that's that's basically the gist of the kind of the options for vacating past marijuana convictions under New York's law. And that's that's the way it's supposed to work. Yeah, Jack, <laughs> it, it sounds good to hear you just describe it. And just for the listeners, I, I think I understand this correctly. Stop me if I don't. When you say some are just automatically vacated, that's stuff like you were convicted of marijuana possession. It's something really yes. low. Yeah, it's when exactly. you maybe were selling it that it became a felony. And those are the ones where you have to do this petitioning process you're explaining. Absolutely. Yeah. So misdemeanors are, I believe all misdemeanors actually related to cannabis are, you know, automatically expunged. The the person convicted of the crime doesn't have to do anything. The court just automatically takes care of that. So they're they're kind of off the hook for that. It's the people who are convicted of kind of more serious offenses who have to proactively go to court um, and basically convince a judge to vacate their past conviction or, like I said, to replace it with a lesser conviction. So at a at a fundamental level, it, it makes sense that if we are in the future no longer convicting people for something, everyone who's already been convicted of that would go, hey, what about me? What's what happened here? But other than, you know, those sorts of uh, the sort of logic that those individuals would would use, why is vacating an old conviction for weed so important? Uh, that's a good question. Um, so, you know, convictions for marijuana, just like, you know, all felony convictions and probably some misdemeanor convictions, too, they carry a lot of baggage with them and they create a lot of obstacles for people who have those convictions. Um, they can interfere with you getting a job. They can interfere with you getting housing. Um, they make you ineligible for certain loans and certain, you know, government programs. Um, it makes it impossible to get certain certifications or licenses to enter certain professions. Um, you know, one of the men that I, I spoke to for my story, um, you know, he was in school studying to be a teacher when he was convicted. And he still has that conviction on his record. And so he can't be a teacher. He wants to go back to school to finish his, to finish his education and become a teacher. And he can't. You can't get a teaching certification with that felony on his record. So he's working as a server and a bartender. Another person in my story is a school counselor, and he hasn't been able to advance in his career. He's actually had a job offer rescinded when, it, when his conviction um, came to light. So it definitely... You know, it can interfere with a lot of, of things that people are trying to do. And, you know, particularly, um, you know, one of the, the men I spoke to for my story, you know, said, you know, he, he wants to move on with his life and give back to the community. And this conviction is making both of those things impossible. Yeah, it's really interesting how impactful a felony can be in someone's record. I think we've heard this in many contexts, and it's just just as true here. And some of these, I mean, I read your great story. I would recommend that our listeners check out our website and do the same. But some of these convictions were years and years ago, even decades ago. So yeah. we're, we're talking about people who've 
really moved on in their life, but then there's stumbling blocks around it. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. One of the, one of the men um, in my story, his conviction, I think is over 20 years old at this point. Um, So you're talking in some cases about people who, you know, made a stupid mistake when they were, you know, in their twenties and now they're in their forties or fifties and they still can't move on from that mistake because of the conviction on their record. Well, I want to dig in a bit to why it's so hard to take advantage of the provisions in this New York law. I mean, you you did a lot of reporting about how in practice it's not working the way that maybe <laughs> the legislature intended. Why is that? What's what's the real disconnect here? That's a really good question. And um, defense attorneys and prosecutors, while they all seem to agree that the law is incredibly confusing and difficult to implement, they seem to disagree on exactly what the problem is. Um, Good. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) But basically, the the part of the law that allows, um, you know, people who have been convicted of more serious felonies to petition courts to vacate those felonies, basically... Um, there's a couple of things going on. One is that it allows um, those convictions to be vacated if they have severe or ongoing consequences, which is an incredibly vague term that is never defined. And obviously, different people are going to read that differently. Um, the law also allows a judge to take other information into account, also a term that is vague and never defined. Um, so you have some judges kind of going back and looking at you know, the the report from the search of a defendant's home or their plea agreement or like, you know, other their original their original charges that they didn't get convicted of. So, you know, you, in, in some instances, a judge has said, well, even though you have this marijuana conviction and you are eligible, you do meet the requirements to have it vacated. You were originally arrested for all this other stuff that you weren't charged with. So because of that, I'm not going to vacate the conviction. So you have stuff like that going on. Which honestly, Jack, that seems, I think, that'll shock a lot of listeners, I think, because those are crimes that someone wasn't convicted of. And yet they're being considered as part of this whole rubric now. Exactly. They are being considered. And another very vague phrase in the law is, you know, judges will point to that one of the criteria for making these decisions is whether or not it is in the interests of justice, which again, judges will say based on those, you know, other other crimes that weren't charged or reports from search warrants, you know, that those go to whether or not it's in the interest of justice to to vacate this person's conviction. Um, And then on top of all of that, um, there is also this typo that you referenced in your introduction um, that uh, New York Appellate Court um, referred to in one of their rulings as a mere scrivener's error, which oh, wow. I find I love find that very, terminology. I find it very Dickensian, which kind of fits <laughs> with this story. So basically, now this is very unclear. So I'll try and make it as clear as I can in as short as time as I can. The, uh, there's a part of the law that says a judge can replace a conviction with a conviction for a lesser offense if the defendant you know meets the requirements in in the section 2a1 of the law but section 2a1 of the law only deals with crimes that were crimes under the previous law but are no longer crimes now so it's section 2a2 that deals with crimes that were crimes under the previous law are now lesser crimes under the current law I so see. basically what the and what the the new york appeals court said in this ruling 
is that the law is basically saying you can substitute if you can substitute a lesser crime for this conviction, but only if that lesser crime isn't a crime. But like basically, right. it's just it just basically is completely contradictory, and it's obviously uh, essentially a typo. Like uh, the legislation is probably meant to to refer to Section Two A Two, and somebody left a, a numeral out. You know what? This is just yet another proof point that copy editors are very important. <laughs> yes, everyone I needs agree. an editor. And as a former copy editor, I thank you for that, that, that <laughs> mic drop. So thank you. Um, yeah, and so so that is definitely one of the things that's going on. And you know, there are people that are pointing to that typo as the reason why this has become so problematic, like New York Appellate Court. Um, but some of the defense attorneys I've spoken to are basically say that that's a red herring. That would, that what's really going on here is that there are certain judges and prosecutors in certain counties that are not happy with marijuana legalization, are not happy with the idea of vacating past convictions. And so they are using that typo and the kind of confusing language in the law to justify refusing to do that. One of the attorneys, one of the defense attorneys I spoke with said that the the mistake isn't really the typo. The mistake is this in the interests of justice. Um, sure. that, that basically gives judges way too much discretion to decide if they're going to vacate a conviction or not. And that it should just be vacate the conviction full stop. Um, you know, another another attorney I spoke to said the problem is the severe and ongoing consequences part of the law, where as long as somebody can show that their conviction has severe and ongoing consequences, their conviction should be vacated you only consider substituting a lesser conviction if there are no severe and ongoing consequences. But obviously, that's not how judges are reading the law. In fact, you know, one judge um, in in um, denying a, a petitioner's request for vacator said that the law required him to substitute the highest equivalent charge under the new law, which is basically the exact opposite of the way this defense attorney is reading the law. So basically a combination of really vague, complicated language and this, you know, typo that has basically confused everybody, including judges, um, makes it practically impossible to use this law to vacate convictions, you know, reliably or consistently. Basically what's happening, I think, is that a lot of you know, defendants who are in, you know, counties where people are supportive of marijuana legalization are having their convictions vacated. And if you are unfortunate enough to live in a county where, you know, that is not the politics and you have, you know, judges and prosecutors who don't want to see those convictions vacated, it's very easy for a judge to justify not vacating that conviction. This is a tale as old as time. Legislators (laughs) have one uh, intent when they set out, and then it can get extremely messy with a little bit of the wording here. Like you said, the typo is really problematic here, too. I am interested, though, about the future. I mean, Mm -hmm. is there, uh, other than the legislature going back and doing a second crack at this, is there a chance that we will gain a body of case law that could clear up the problems we're talking about? 
Absolutely. So yes, um, the easiest way to fix this would be for the legislature to revise the law, but I don't think that's going to happen, especially seeing how, for those of us in New York, we saw how long it took them to pass the law in the first place. Um, so one of the things that, you know, I spoke to two defense attorneys who are handling uh, a series of these cases and what that establishing case law is actually one of the things they're trying to do. They are bringing these cases and then you know, when their clients' petitions are getting denied, they're appealing them up to appellate courts in the hopes of establishing precedent and at the very least getting courts to say what the law actually is. Um, that is somewhat difficult because in certain of these cases, you can't just appeal the decision. You have to you know, file for leave to appeal. So you basically have to get permission to appeal. And there's also confusion around whether or not you do have to get permission to appeal these cases. So that's a whole other you know, bucket of worms. Um, but yes, basically what they're trying to do is kind of move these cases up the appellate ladder um, so that eventually there is some kind of consistent precedent in terms of how these laws work. Um, and unfortunately, you know, one of the one of the lawyers I spoke to said that, you know, it's you know, in his case did make it to at least one appellate level. And he basically said that they flubbed it, you know, that the just the judges who who did that appeal just totally misinterpreted the law. Um, and so he's, you know, obviously he's filing leave to appeal that decision. And yeah, basically, we just have to wait and see how courts decide to interpret this. And as courts interpret it differently, you know, that's going to that's going to cause some some splits that, you know, might eventually work its their way up to like the state's highest court. Jack, I mean, early days to understand what's really going on on the ground here. I think it'll take a while before we could actually make it to something like this, the highest court in yeah. New York. But um, fascinating how, like, you, like you've explained, like we start with a law that seems so good and simple on its face and then it devolves into this mess. I am really feel edified to hear all about it from you. Thanks for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. It's really interesting to talk about. Haley, we did it. We made it to the end of the show. Thanks for holding down the, the program with me today. Thank you, Amber. I also want to thank our producers, Kelly Marcano and Stephen Trader, our guest this week, Jack Carp, and our contributing reporter, Brian Koenig. Music for our show comes from silent partner and Kelly Marcano. If you like Pro Se, that's when you can do us a big favor, leave us a written review and five stars because it really drives people to find our program. If you want to read more about anything we've talked about, that's when you check out our website. It's law360.com slash podcast. Thanks and see you back here next week.